Um, I'm probably a poet on roller skates, to be honest. Like, I don't know how to sort of shed that. Hey, CNFers, it's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. How's it going? We have the uber poet Maggie Smith on the show this week for episode 365. Oh, she has a new memoir called You Could Make This Place Beautiful. It's published by Atria. This book is a stick of dynamite, man. Loved it. Maggie is at Maggie Smith Poet on Twitter and Instagram, and she has a great Substack where she talks all things writing and breaking down poems, many times her own poems. And can I share something real quick? So at the end of our conversation with uh, with with Maggie, this is, uh, took place a few weeks ago. I accidentally hung up the phone. Not exactly a phone to record these things, but you get it. And I had no way of calling her back to let her know that I had hit the wrong button. So as soon as we were done with the interview, I fucking hang up on her. See you later, Maggie Smith. I got what I needed. Now be gone. I was horrified. I broke out into a sweat and I frantically was typing in an electronic mail uh, uh, to her. I hit the wrong button and I waited for about an hour, still sweating like a hog. And she wrote back saying she figured it was a technical snafu. And then I stopped sweating. Make sure you're heading over to brendanomero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. It's now on Substack. Just click the lightning bolt on my website or visit rageagainstthealgorithm.substack.com. Still first of the month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you can't beat it. What with Twitter burying any tweet that has a link that takes you away from Twitter, I'm more and more inclined to just be done with Twitter altogether. This is how we rage against the algorithm. If you dig this show, consider sharing it with your network so we can grow the pie and get the CNF and thing into the brains of other CNFers who need the juice, man. You can also leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts so the wayward CNFer might say, shit, I'll give that a shot. Also, show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap, so consider heading to patreon.com slash cnfpod and consider dropping a few bucks in the hat. If you glean some value from what we churn and burn here at CNF Pod HQ, shout out to Tracy Slater, She's a new patron and someone who just signed the book contract. This podcast, along with a couple others, helped her through the process of the book proposal. And she shared on Twitter that she's got a, got a contract, signature and everything. Awesome. Congratulations, Tracy. And thanks for the support. I can't wait for your book to come out. Is it an overstatement to say that Maggie Smith is a national treasure? In this episode, we dig into our 3 a.m. voices how her relationship to writing has changed over the years, and how she broke out the highlighters to help structure her brilliant memoir. So are you ready to get after it? This, on the day Metallica, releases their newest album, 72 Seasons. Oh yes, let's hit it. Riff. Uh, of late, I, uh, I, uh, I have like a, what I like to call, it's, it's an enemy of sorts, but it's my like 2 or 3 a.m. voice, because I usually wake up around 2 or 3 a.m., and it's not a... Same. Yeah, and uh, I, am, I get hit with this voice, especially now since I'm working on something that actually has a concrete deadline. It is, it is not a, it's not a pleasant voice, and it keeps me awake. It often gets me out of bed, and I have like no choice but to go to the couch and read or try to find some other place to sleep. And uh, for you, I, I, it sounds like you get up that at that time. Do you have that nagging voice of self-doubt that wakes you up at 2 or 3 in the morning, and then you have to somehow contend with that? I don't even know that it's a self-doubt voice. I think it's like a, a life overwhelm, yes. um, to-do list... Have you forgotten something? Are you on top of all the things? Like it's, it's like the the nagging feeling that the mom has on the airplane when she realizes in Home Alone mm. that Kevin is not on the plane. It's like that Kevin yeah. voice where I wake up in the middle of the night and I feel like there's something I was supposed to do today, or there's some something I was supposed to do this week, 
that is not on my radar and I'm, I'm missing something. Um, it's like the feeling of having packed your bags and you know that like the medication that will keep you alive is not in the suitcase. Um, it's completely irrational. And most of the time it's nothing. And I can never really figure out what the thing is that's, that's waking me that I'm forgetting about, but I often cannot go back to sleep once my mind is active like you. So I get up and sometimes I might work for two hours in the middle of the night on, you know, student work or my own writing or something for my Substack or whatever, because if I'm going to be awake, I might as well not be just staring at the ceiling, feeling bad about it. (laughs) Well, that's the thing too. Yeah. You're wrestling like that. And, you know, for people like us who are usually in front of computers all day, reading all day, sometimes like even though you're sort of told you wake up in the middle, like go to the couch and read. It's like, all I do is read. And sometimes my eyes are just (laughs) bleeding out of my head. So I almost don't know what to do. I can't look at a computer screen at three in the morning. It's just going to burn, burn my retinas, even with my blue blockers on. It's just like, I don't know. I don't know what to do with myself. (laughs) I know it'd probably be better to like, go take a walk um, or like go do something physical that can sort of like exercise that whatever that nervous energy is out of the body instead of continuing to sort of live in one's mind, which is where the nervous energy like lives and thrives. Um, But I can't do that in my house at night because I've got kids sleeping upstairs and a dog sleeping (laughs) downstairs and creaky floors. So whatever I do in the middle of the night needs to be pretty much silent so that I'm not disturbing anybody else. Yeah. It's um, now I understand you, you uh, celebrated your uh, a birthday recently, right? Yes, very I nice. Did. Happy birthday! Thank you. And the uh, I've been asking some people this late, you know, I've uh, of late that uh, that to give you a little context, I, I feel like every five ish years or so, my sort of like relationship to writing has kind of changes, yeah, yeah, be, just as mm-hmm. you know, just maturing or whatever call it that it's a, uh, but uh <laughs> yeah we'll go that. with that I guess it sounds weird coming out of my mouth but uh, so I wonder for you having just celebrated uh, another birthday you know and um yeah, how has your relationship you know over maybe five or even 10 year increments you know changed as you've gotten a little bit older matured matured. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm definitely getting older. If I'm maturing, that I, I suppose is is maybe best uh, left to the people in my life who could be a better judge of that <laughs> than, than I am. I still do like to roller skate, so I'm, I'm not sure that the maturing is actually That's happening. Awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know that my relationship to my writing has changed all that much and that my process is still pretty much the same. I approach projects pretty much in the same way. I think I respect it more than I did five years ago. You know, I just turned 46. So when I was 41, I'm not sure I, I really saw writing as my work in the same way that, that I see it now. And and I don't, I'm, I'm sure there are like a whole host of reasons for why that was, but one thing I will say that over the past few years, I think writing, beginning to write and publish more prose, uh, as opposed to only poetry, probably has changed my relationship to my writing more than any maturing I may or may not have done. <laughs> um, that has been really, that has been really different. And I was, I was talking to a, a friend, a, a poet friend recently about, about that. And I, it just occurred to me, like, why do we not write as widely as we read? You know, if if most of us read short stories and novels and poems and essays and articles and memoirs, and why why are we not why are we not allowing ourselves really to sort of dip into these different spaces that we do dip into as readers because what we feel like it's not our territory. And yeah, so that's been the big shift I would say over the last five years is sort of reconsidering what my territory might be and letting myself like (laughs) exit the poetry bubble. If we're, if we're going to continue with the metaphor, which is always like 
metaphor is, is the thing, isn't <laughs> right. it? Um, well, it's kind of like cross-training in a way. You know, like you can write and get outside of like your, you know, sort of the, the bubble of your brand to use an even gro- like a real gross term. Yeah. Uh, but it's like I find that, you know, I'm primarily a nonfiction guy uh, and and in the vein of you know um like kind of profile biography feature that that kind of realm so if i dabble in just say like writing fiction on the side not even for publication but just as an exercise in like imagination but also ways to to not forget about scene and sort of dialogue and then i'm like oh that these are now that i've kind of remember what that feels like to write maybe those are kind of the questions that can animate my reporting to like to build better uh-huh. nonfiction scenes that are verifiably true but it kind of comes through in the muscle of working out the the fiction tactics i don't, I don't know if that makes yeah. any sense uh, you know to you and, and dabbling yeah. it does i mean i think you know i i write everything as a poet regardless of genre mm-hmm. <laughs> And I don't know if most people who write across, you know, across different genres feel that way. Like if when they're writing prose, they feel like a prose writer. And when they're writing something else, they feel like something else. But I feel like a poet doing whatever I'm doing. Um, I'm probably a poet on roller skates, to be (laughs) honest. Like, I don't know how to sort of shed that. And so it's true that I think we can sort of squirrel skills from one kind of writing, you know, into another, but I, I'm definitely always trying to sort of squirrel my poetry skills into my other kinds of writing because that's where I feel comfortable. So I don't know how to write prose as a prose writer, if that makes any sense. Like it would almost feel like ventriloquism to try to do it from some, come at it from some other angle. I can only really enter any piece of writing as a poet. And so that informs every decision I make. That makes, that makes sense. I, I totally get that. Cause even when I dabble, like in the, in the little fiction things, I always like, I'm like, if I just do a little more legwork, I can make this nonfiction. Like this doesn't, this feels too, yeah. this feels <laughs> too fake for me. Like, I don't, I don't, I like, I appreciate this and it's just like, but I'm, I don't know. I, I just don't, uh, it, it, it's like the guitar's out of tune. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a fan. And, and yeah. I kind of, I kind of get this. So I guess, it, like, as you're approaching everything as a, as a poet, it's like even when I do fiction, I like I approach it as like, like a non, uh, like a, a journalist, and it just, it, and it feels, it feels something doesn't feel quite right. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally get that. Like something about the container, right, feels off. Like you're always trying to make it this other thing. Um, I mean, I every time I sit down to write anything because I've got a little scrap of language or a line or a sentence or an image or something, even a story I want to tell. I always try to make it a poem first. And it's funny because it it becomes pretty apparent fairly early if it's going to work as a poem or if that container is like way too small, um, like literally too small to do everything that I want it to do and then it needs to be I need more real estate so it needs to be an essay or a series of essays etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah and a moment ago you said something about you know your your comfort zone of course is poetry and you approach everything through that prism and I believe it was just uh, today in your your substack that came out that basically you know you said like right at the end just to sum it up you said my two cents don't get too comfortable if you've noticed some patterns in your own work it's up to you to keep pushing yourself in new directions and testing out new possibilities so that seems to be something that's uh, kind of on your mind right oh of course i'm always thinking about that i mean it's it's funny i think if we look at our work if we can look at it like we're not ourselves, right? Like try to come at it from an objective perspective. If I flip through a book of my poems, I can, I can like see visually what my comfort zone is as a writer. And even flipping through my memoir, I can see visually what my comfort zone is, which is I like to write small, Mm. right? I like to write, I can write something long by writing something small over and over again. Um, I'm a whittler. So that's, that's my mode. 
but it's, I think it's helpful to know ourselves as writers and know what our sort of default modes are so that we don't get too cozy and risk, I mean, just creative and stylistic complacency because we are kind of copying and pasting a version of the thing we've been writing over and over and over again. And, and, you know, we all, we all, I think, travel over the same territory and material, you know, in some ways I'm, I've been writing like maybe the same five poems my whole life because I'm obsessed with a few big subjects and I'm always kind of approaching them in various ways, but I don't want to be, um, you know, falling into ruts stylistically and creatively where the poems sound the same and look the same and sort of like have the same rhetorical moves or the same narrative arcs over and over again. I mean, that's, I don't want to bore myself, let alone the reader. Yeah. You don't want to turn into like the Michael Bay of poetry or something. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Michael Bay is, I mean, he's pretty set. Am I right? Like he doesn't have to pay for his health insurance on the marketplace. (laughs) So maybe I do want to be the Michael Bay of poetry. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Where's your, like we, we need, uh, we need some more transformers poems out of you. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Is is that all it takes? Okay. It's it's the formula. (laughs) So, so I understand. (laughs) I I love, uh, what you said a moment ago about like writing small and even because when you write small, especially, I mean, it could be like literally in just in terms of like the word choices are even small and like not as you know polysyllabic as, as some as the word polysyllabic is, but it, yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. like it, those, the vessel of those words can carry such a, a heavy punch. There's a density there. And I wonder if that's always on your, on the forefront of your mind as you're, as, as you said a moment ago too, like whittling down. Yeah. I mean, I think my revision process is really about making things more concise and more distilled. And so I'm always asking myself, like, what fat can I cut away? What connective tissue isn't necessary here? Like, would a juxtaposition do the same work? Do I need this transition material? What information can I get into a title that will sort of like allow me not to clutter up the the essay or the poem with a bunch of sort of exposition, which is the enemy of lyric, you know? Um, I'm always thinking about how to make a thing like boiled down, but not reductive, but boiled down in that like every bit is essential and there's not a bunch of extra stuff. And so to like approach something like a memoir where you're kind of shooting for a word count, which is something I've never done before. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of weird to get to your 40s and other than like a book review or an article for the post or something to have never really had to write a book to a to a, you know, a guideline word count, because that's not how books of poetry are built. No one cares how many words, as long as they're the right ones in the right order. And so the only way I could really approach a project as large as the memoir was to allow myself to write every individual piece the way that I do, which is by cutting the fat and thinking about what's essential and trimming it down and then moving on to the next thing and treating it the exact same way. And, and, and basically sort of playing by poetry's rules, even though I was traveling into the, uh, you know, the wild frontier of the entire page and pushing myself all the way to the right-hand margin, which is something I, haven't done much in life. Mm. And when you were, you know, when you're originally conceiving of, of the memoir, what were like, what were some, some books and maybe who were some authors that gave you inspiration, even a model for what you were hoping to, to pull off perhaps? Oh yeah. That's a great question. I, I mean, I've, I've read a ton of memoirs and some of them I looked at and I was like, I don't know how someone did that. It's like how I feel about novels. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know how someone did that. And then I would pick up other memoirs and I'd say, oh, either this person is also a poet or they're writing in such a way that I as a poet feel like I'm being let in and I'm being shown a way that I can do this my way. 
So um, something like um, The Two Kinds of Decay by Sarah Manguso, who's also a poet. In the Dream House, Carmen Maria Machado. Um, Safekeeping by Abigail Thomas. Uh, definitely The Chronology of Water, mm. Lydia Yuknovich. I mean, just piece like books that kind of gave me permission to not just tell the story, you know, like deal with the content of the book, but gave me permission to do it as a poet and maybe in a sort of more lyrical, um, you know, piecier way. Yeah. There, those books that you mentioned, uh, I've read a, a few of them and they are very distinctive. And I imagine that, that in terms of permission, like you just said, it gave you this idea like, oh, I can totally inhabit like my own voice and my own sense of self and make this memoir not look like anything else, but something that wholly came from from me and only me. And I'm the only one who could have written this one. Yeah. I mean, it's like I I didn't want to write this book as someone else. I didn't want to sort of like put on some sort of like I don't know how to describe it, like a prose writer persona yeah. where I would then like change my my style of writing in order to write a new kind of book. I really wanted to be able to write this book as myself. And I think honestly, I needed to because it was such a vulnerable act, even writing the book that it would have felt like too much to be like putting on airs stylistically as I was doing it like I needed to not have to think about being myself or not being myself I just had to be able to kind of show up as is and hope that it would it would turn out okay <laughs> yeah and I, I wanted to get a sense of you know your your approach to it in terms of form and structure because we're dealing with a lot of short chapters and then there's you know quotes and poems and like repeated beats throughout the entire the entire book so what was the the thinking behind those stylistic choices? Yeah, well, you know, when I write a poem, like my first thought is how do I sort of best embody or enact the content in the form? Like I'm thinking about how the shape of the thing will actually shore up what I'm writing about. And so I kind of think what I was tasked with writing this book was how to accurately embody or enact the experience. And so the experience was marked by, you know, complexity and fragmentation and recursiveness and rumination. And so it was definitely more of a spiral or a series of waves more than it was sort of a history book timeline. And so I really, I knew I needed the writing to move in that way. So the, the vignettes for me weren't just my comfort zone as far as writing in small sort of distilled pieces, but that form felt most psychologically true to me because memory is associative, right? Like when I hear a song that reminds me of something else, then that pings and reminds me of something else. And then suddenly I'm back in that car, which reminds me of the person who owned the car, which reminds me of this one time. And it's, that's not a straight line. That is almost, you know, sort of a web or constellation. And I really wanted to get at, at that when putting the book together. So it literally was like assembling a poetry collection for me, which meant printing out hundreds of pages, laying them out on my living room floor while my kids were, you know, at school and I had the house to myself and getting out a lot of colored markers. It was a, a complete Luddite process. And like color coding the different threads as I saw them in the book. You know, the quotes, the forward narrative, the flashback stories, the italicized parts that kind of mull over these metaphors. Um, the sort of narrative threads where I'm thinking about plot and character and setting. Um, and sort of like, okay, one thread was pink and one was blue and one was green. And then assembling the book so that the narrative is forward moving, but that no one thread drops out for a chunk. 
So if I read 30 pages and I realized there was no pink and that all the pink was in the back, I would have to kind of figure out a way to like as elegantly as possible redistribute some of that. So it was a lot of paper shuffling, honestly. Yeah, that's a the color coding thing is such a that's such a brilliant way. So you can at a helicopter at a glance, you can just you see the balance right there or the lack of balance. And you're like, all right, I need yeah, like you said, I gotta figure out how to fold the fold this color in over here. And then it's just gonna feel far far more, yeah, just like in tune, in balance. I I love that. I, but I love you say you know you were saying that the the paper things were like kind of a luddite thing, but I think it's so important to uh, detach ourselves from the screen and be able to have hold things in our hands and to mark things up. Is is that something you even you do quite a bit even with your with your poetry and how you kind of annotate and even edit? Um, okay, so confession: I don't know how to type. <laughs> You, so you're just a peck, like a pecker with. Uh, I I only use my two index wow. fingers, and I always have. So I write pretty much everything longhand first until it takes enough shape for me to justify putting my two poor pointer fingers to work at my laptop, and then I input it. Um, with this book, I did actually do more writing on screen than I've ever done in my life. Um, and I don't know what it is about writing a paragraph versus writing in lines that my brain feels like that, that sort of relationship works, but because I type so slowly and so inaccurately, my brain works better with my fast hand when I'm writing longhand and I always feel like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking too fast for my fingers when I'm at my laptop. That That's crazy. Usually it's the other way around where like people need to like write longhand to slow their brain down. Right. <laughs> that, that's bunk. Yeah. yeah. No, not me. It's funny. Cause I've, I mean, both of my kids can type like for real because they've learned this in school and I didn't even have email till college. So I started writing longhand because it was before I had a computer to write at. Um, I used to pay a woman in our neighborhood to type my high school papers on her typewriter with my babysitting money as payment because we didn't have we didn't have a computer at my house um, when I was when I was younger. So. This is, this is, these are how habits are born, right. I suppose. Yeah. I've, I, uh, a while ago, several years ago, I think I tweeted like the greatest thing I learned from my high school education was how to type. And, oh, 100%. And, like, I feel cheated. Yeah. Like <laughs> when you think about it, it was just like, it's the greatest skill I've ever, I've like really ever learned. And like someone starkly said like, Oh, some, some public education. I'm like, well, what? I'm like, whatever, man. Like, this is the actual thing that I'm actually taking from my high school education. That's actually like making me a professional. So it's like, it, this actually works. It's a good vocation at a type. A hundred percent. I cheated in keyboarding, which is what led to this. So let me be like uh, a cautionary tale to, to any high schooler who may be listening to this. Do not cheat in keyboarding by moving the little wooden, you know, hand cover away from your keyboard as the teacher circulates the room because cheating and typing leads to just despair in later life if you end up being a writer. Look at my arthritic pointer fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I know. They're they're powerful, but, but they have like I, I really should have like I should insure them. Like, you know, like hand models yeah. have those in like insane yes. uh insurance policies for their beautiful hands. Mine are not beautiful, but these these pointer fingers, if if I lose them and in some terrible, you know, chopping vegetables accident for some vegetarian meal. We're we're in a world of pain. <laughs> I, uh, I I in the book too. You wrote, uh, you know, how can the story, this experience, uh, be useful to anyone other than me? How can I make the, this material into a tool you can use? And I think that's such a valuable couple of questions to ask anyone writing a memoir so it doesn't feel self-indulgent but it it is respectful of the reader so what was the calculus there as you even even uh put that on the page yeah it's it's i'm i'm glad you used the word self-indulgent because i think it's so 
every sort of like every writer I know who's published a memoir at one point tweets, why did I do this? Why did I think anyone else would want to read about my life? Yeah. Right. I mean, you've probably seen these tweets, too. And of course, as a poet, I was like, oh, please, like everyone wants to read about your individual experience. It doesn't need to match mine. Like, I love seeing a window into your life and sort of what you've experienced. And it, it you know, that, that's that's great. And then and then you do it and you find yourself thinking, if not tweeting, why did I do this? Why would anyone else want to read about my specific life? And so I think I got to a point in the writing of this book where I just, I thought that like what, you know, I was really sort of having a conversation with myself about the value of sharing specific life experiences with a wider audience, many of whom, you know, these people don't know you at all and who may not have shared or had any of these same experiences. And so what, like, how do I justify doing it? Right? Like what, what, how can I make this useful for other people to justify doing it? And in the writing of the book, I actually got to a point, I think a bit later where I'm like, you know what, actually experience is enough. Like sharing experience, sharing a human experience with other human beings is enough and is, is kind of instructive in plenty of ways, but I don't need to it doesn't need to be useful to you in like five bullet point ways I can share to make you buy this book. Um, It doesn't have to be quote unquote, a tool for it to have value. Right. It doesn't have to be a self-help And I know that as a poet. Yeah. Like, I don't know why I, I never thought of that writing poetry. I never thought like, what am I really offering to people with these poems? And I, so I don't quite know why, memoir felt different to me in that way like why I would even think that I would have to justify the sort of the process by having an end result that was quote-unquote useful um yeah I wonder if it has to do with the the time commitment to read a memoir versus say uh, a few poems or even a poetry collection which you can kind of you know, depending on how you metabolize it, you could read in a day or you can choose to read it piecemeal. Um, maybe it, it does feel like, well, you're probably going to be spending an entire week and maybe several hours reading this. So you, you need to, like, know something of the secret sauce in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, what's the value? Add? <laughs> right. Like, if I'm inviting yeah. you in and you're going to spend a day with this book, like, you know, I mean, I'm not offering recipes. I'm not giving you any, like, what's the value add? Like, there is definitely a roller skating playlist in this book. I, that's a spoiler alert. So if that's what you're looking for, it'll be useful. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I just, I think probably if I'm, if I'm really honest with myself and I try to be, I think it was probably coming from an insecurity about, you know, again, venturing out of my comfort zone, out of my bubble into a different bubble and recognizing that the readership for that bubble is probably wider than the poetry readership and wondering if I had the right to, to sort of like to do it, you know, as a, as a, as a writer, you know, primarily a poet or identifies as a poet, when you stepped out of the bubble, what, what surprised you or what felt felt, I don't know, just for lack of a better term, what felt weird uh, uh, about being outside of that that comfort zone, uh, that bubble? Yeah, I mean, I think with poetry, there's a speaker, right? So even if a poem that I write is in first person, it has an I in it. And even in the if the I in my poem has a dog, and two kids, which I do, we are trained as readers of poetry and as teachers not to conflate the author with the speaker of the poem. Mm. So even if it's a poem about a woman and her two kids, and it's definitely like very close to me in my neighborhood, it's definitely my Boston Terrier. Those are definitely my two kids. That's not how we talk about the poem. And so even if it's like flimsy cover, I've had it. 
all this time where it's the speaker of the poem this, the speaker of the poem that, it's not me, Maggie Smith, writer of the poem. And so, you know, venturing out of out of that comfort zone and into memoir and, and into personal essay, it's like, oh, okay, it's just me now. Like I, maybe it was, it was fairly light cover in a poem, but now I don't actually feel like I have any cover. Like the I in this book is just me, the person that you can see at the grocery store if you're there at the same time I am. And so that I think was weird. The, the sort of like collapsing of, of speaker or, you know, slash narrator and writer and one of the ways I made that less uncomfortable for myself was pulling in some of the kind of meta narrative and also writing some of it in third person, because I just, I, I wanted to sort of play with this idea of like what happens when we write as ourselves and how, like what, how is it maybe more comfortable not to like, if I had novelized mm-hmm. my life, would it have been more comfortable to write this as he, she, instead of I? And in some ways, yes, it would have been more comfortable because, again, sort of writing a semi-autobiographical novel is cover in the same way the speaker of, of a poem is cover. Right. And and uh, at, at the start of the book, you have this wonderful Emily Dickinson quote that you know, where she says, uh, I'm out with lanterns looking for myself. And, you know, when you put something like that right at the start, you know, it really signifies something. So, you know, what was the 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 significance of that particular quote that really animates, you know, what we're about to read? Yeah, I mean, I really I, my approach to this book was the way I approach any piece of writing, which is not knowing how it's going to turn out. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like all writing is discovery. I never know what I'm writing about when I sit down to write. I never know where it's going. I don't have the end in mind. Like I have no idea where I'm going. So I may just have enough light to kind of like get the next few steps and then I can travel the next few steps with that light and then the next few steps. And, And so I came to this book really with a spirit of, you know, curiosity and openness about my adult life. And maybe also a bit of naivete in that I thought if I think deeply enough into these experiences, which I'll need to do to write this book, I will have all the answers and I will have figured it out and I will have, you know, for lack of a better word, solved all of these mysteries of my life and how I got here, you know, that the sort of the David Byrne talking heads, how did I get here? Mm-hmm. This is not my beautiful life. I really thought and and sort of believed that some of this was solvable, at least in my own mind, if I really put the time and energy and thinking into it you know, being out with lanterns looking for myself. And I did, I did find more of myself in the writing of this book. I did not, spoiler alert, find all of the answers because of course that's not how life works. Right. Yeah. And er- early on too, I, I, I love how you wrote this. Like my husband and I became friends in an advanced creative writing workshop in college. You might want to dog ear this detail in your mind so you can come back to it later. So naturally I dog eared it. And it's like, it's one of those things where 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 you have like two creative people who who meet up and it, there can be if one gets some recognition or one stays on that path and one might divert off that path there can often be you know resentment and bitterness there and and that's uh is that what you found to be to be true where the foundation started to like kind of crack and get brittle Well it's hard for me to know I mean that's like part of why like no book is a tell all is that you only mm. have access to your own experience. Yeah. And so, you know, like a, a big part of my approach with this book is like, I can only speak for myself and what I experienced and witnessed and how it felt though. I don't actually know the this, you know, capital T truth of what that was. And so did it feel 
like that was part of the tension from my perspective. Yes. But I don't know that it was because I'm only in my body and mind and not anyone else's. Um, I do think it's hard for two creatives to be in a relationship. Um, I think it's hard for two people of any of, you know, in any career to have kids and try to balance the work of their own stuff and raising children. So I think having all of that in the mix was not an easy, you know, a, a lot of ingredients and not an easy recipe. Oh yeah. Even at, well, you, when you throw in the multiple role aspect of it, you know, there's a point where one of the chapters was the the spreadsheet where one of your friends like really itemized everything you know the the unpaid labor that uh that she was doing around the house and you know and you come to this realization that when you had gone away you never for like a writer's conference or a retreat or or whatever it was that you didn't feel missed as a person i felt missed as staff my invisible labor was made painfully visible when i left the house i was needed back in my post yeah, I mean that's that's true. I think for for writers or creatives who are, you know, the primary caregiver, it's a tough balance when you when you need to be away for a book tour or for a reading or a college visit or AWP or or whatever the thing is. And you know, I've always seen my work as being twofold. I'm a writer and I'm a parent. And I don't really see them being at odds, you know, like being, being a parent has actually enriched my writing, but the time issue and the presence issue can, can put those two things at odds, right? Like I can't, I can't always be parenting if I also need to be elsewhere to do something in service of my writing. And I can't always be someplace in service of my writing because I need to be parenting, which is why I'm not attending AWP this year. And so that's that's like a, a balance that I'm learning to, to sort of strike on my own now as a single parent. But it was often tense when I was married. Yeah. And, the you know, that moment, too, about like bitterness and resentment. Uh, like, I know you didn't want to put words in uh, your ex-husband's mouth, but it, like when Good Bones went viral, like you you made mention that there was like a wince like when that happened and like right there you can, I, I could feel that sense of, of, of jealousy and, and resentment just cause those are feelings that I feel when I sometimes see other people's <laughs> successes and I'm like, why, why haven't I had mine? And it's, uh, I, I, I feel that wince and it's not even, I'm not even in a contractually bound relationship at the time. So it's, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, no, we all do. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard and I think it's also natural, yeah. you know, whether you're married to the person or they're your best friend or just like a writer friend who you see get something that you think, oh, and maybe it's not even something you could have gotten or applied right. for or anything, but somehow like, you know, I, I do think there's this sort of like scarcity mindset in the writing world where it's like, there's yeah. only so many things to go around and if somebody else gets something, it means we're like, it's like being taken from us, which is such a like impoverished view of how this whole uh, sort of like, I don't know, I think of poetry as sort of a gift economy. Um, so I try not to think about it that way. And I would like to believe that if the roles were reversed, I would be, you know, like, completely pleased and happy and not at all put out or, you know, inconvenienced or cranky about my partner's success or need to suddenly travel a bit more. But who knows, you know, if the rules were reversed, it may have been exactly the same. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I'm not perfect. I have no idea how I would have behaved. Um, it's, you know, it's, this stuff isn't easy. How did you metabolize the, the, the virality of, you know, good, of good bones when it, when it came out, you know, being in relative obscurity and then suddenly being thrust into the spotlight? It was really strange. Yeah. I mean, I had two small kids and I was uh, working from home and, you know, most people in my community really didn't know me much as a writer. 
And so I was like the person who pushed the stroller around town and was like at toddler story time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I kind of felt like I went into a phone booth and came out and, and was this poet suddenly, even though I'd been doing it for years. So it was, it was weird. I mean, I, I can't lie. It was really strange. And it, it had a, it, I think it could have had it risked having a negative impact on my ability to write going forward. I, I just remember sitting down and having this sort of conversation with myself about, okay, what now? Like suddenly, you know, I was read by a fairly narrow audience of mostly other poets and people who really like poetry with my first couple of books with small presses. And now all these people are like actresses and musicians and, you know, other people who, who sort of aren't in the poetry circle, which is a small, beautifully discerning circle that I love. Suddenly all these people are kind of watching and what do they want from me? Like, what do they expect from me next? Like, you know, I can't recreate this. I'm not going to write a sequel to this poem. I'm not going to be able to like, to do this, whatever this is, again, every poem is a one-off, you know? So I had to kind of like sit down, probably the way that like people who have a radio hit are like, oh no, <laughs> like what next? And I think the the good thing about poets is that like, I don't, you don't have like an A&R person or a manager. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have anybody telling me anything. And so there was absolutely no pressure to like, capitalize on this or monetize this or um like now we need to make your next you know quote single sound like this because that's what is getting radio play and that's what people want and so i just sat down and and basically said well i can completely be paralyzed by this because i don't know what is worth writing next based on the success of this poem or i can pretend it never happened And so I just pretended it never happened and started writing poems about sticks and stones, quite literally. And just like whatever came to my mind, the smallest, most granular, no one would possibly ever care about them poems, just to kind of like clear the decks and like flush all of that attention from my system so I could just get back to work. And... You know, and, and the name of your memoir derives from, you know, basically the kicker of the poem. So in a way, it kind of brings the poem back up to the surface and probably going to reintroduce it to an entirely different different audience. So in a sense, was there a hesitation to have a, like a callback to the poem as the title of the book? Or did it do they feel in some in some way together entwined? Yeah, they do feel entwined. And and honestly, you know, hearing you say that, I'm like, I didn't really think about, I'm so, I'm so in my own head so much. I didn't even think about the idea that, that the memoir might introduce people who are not familiar with the poem to the poem. Um, but I have to say, I love that idea because most people encounter this poem when bad things happen. Um, most people, I think, encounter good bones on the internet when someone tweets it after yet another school shooting. So I, I like the idea, frankly, that um, someone could have like a more, (laughs) a more sort of joyful introduction to the poem that doesn't have to do with, um, you know, a tragedy in the news. There's a, a a wonderful Rebecca Solnit quote that you that you use in the book too, where she writes that writing is work that can hold up its head with all other kinds of useful work out there in the world, and it is genuinely work. And I I just love that as an ethos about how this is you know craft and and work and just like you were saying uh, earlier in our conversation, like whittling things down and getting getting things down that it is that it is work. And uh, I wonder if this, what about that, like really resonated with you? Well, I I think, you know, and even the idea of having to think about this book as a tool that I could offer to readers, you know, even that kind of like self-justification, I felt like I needed halfway through writing this book comes from a place of like, not always having the work treated as such. 
And it was really important to me to approach it that way and, and to sort of like honor that part of my life um, and invest in it without apology, without permission. And actually when I, um, when I recorded the audio book, I remember reading, reading whatever happens right before that in the book and then reading that Rebecca Solnit quote and pausing, you know, waiting for the audio producer to say, can you read the sentence again? Or, you know, that sounds great onto the next page. And it hitting me that some of these quotes, particularly the quotes by women writers that are peppered through the book, it's like I had this like wonderful gang of people also speaking on my behalf. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it was the like the strangest experience. It's like, and not only do I believe it's work, but here's Rebecca Solnit also backing me up, saying that it's work. And not only do I feel this way, but here's a here's Maggie Nelson saying that she also felt this way. And it it felt really powerful to me recording the book, having having these these voices in particular of other of other women who do what I do because it is work. Yeah. And there's the Joan Didion one too, where you say like, it's easy to see beginnings, the beginnings of things and harder to see the ends. And, and I think that was, that especially hit home to the way you constructed the whole postcard delivery system in the, in the book where you really start, start with the discovery. And then a bit later, I forget exactly where later, but uh, you know, there's a, the moment where you you share the survey of like midlife crisis, the prescription aviators, the black luxury car, and they're like midlife crisis. And someone says like, Oh, he definitely has a new girlfriend. You're like, yeah, you kind of blow that off. And like a week later, you're like, Oh, I, I find the postcard. And yeah, sometimes life plays funny tricks on you. Yeah. You're like, am I in a movie? Like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I thought my life was much more dull than this, but it it seems to be following some fairly like predictable plot points right now. And and towards the, you know, I I clipped out a bunch of things. Sometimes I had an e-galley for my Kindle. So sometimes I don't know where they are in relation to the rest of the book. It's just kind of disorienting with an e-reader versus an actual paper copy. Uh, but, but you wrote the, um, you know, this isn't the story of a woman who fell in love again and therefore was healed and lived happily ever after. This is the story of a woman coming home to herself. And I, I loved he- hearing that, uh, that distillation. And I think that echoes your poem bride too. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I, I was sort of, um, you know, one of the bits of feedback I got somewhere along the way of writing this book is like, you should write about the relationship you're in now. And I thought, you know, I actually don't really want to write much about that because that's not the point. Like this, the arc of this story isn't like woman, woman gets married, woman um, loses husband, woman finds new person, woman feels better. Yeah. Like that's not the story arc here. Like I, and I don't even want to let people read into that, that that might be the story arc here. Cause it's just simply not it. So it, it felt important to me to like pull the reader aside and just be like, listen, if you're tempted to think that this is how this is going, please, that's not what's on the menu here. I, I think it also underscores, you know, just given the, the form and the structure of the whole book about, about selection and what you choose to share and what you choose not to share other points of views, you, you, uh, openly say like I'm not gonna tell his side like this is my story and I'm just gonna we're gonna stay with me like love it or not you're staying with me (laughs) yep that's right yeah I mean you can't talk for other people I don't know how and I wouldn't want anyone else talking for me like you know I don't I'm not revealing my kids interior lives in this book either I just I think like I I set up sort of boundaries in life and boundaries in writing. I had to set up parameters for myself that I was comfortable with. And I realized that probably there are readers who will want more in certain moments in the book and who aren't getting more because, you know, it's a memoir and not a deposition. And so I'm not actually required <laughs> to give everything. Absolutely. Well, well, Maggie, I want it. There's so many more things I definitely could have dived into and um i want to be mindful of your time and um as i 
bring these conversations down for a landing, and I, I hope the sort of confirmation notes got to your way where I like to ask for people uh, for a recommendation for the guests, uh, for the listeners. I'm sorry. My brain is still all fucked up from the flu. <laughs> it's uh, so like a recommendation of sorts for the listeners, and that can be anything that you're excited about that uh, that's just bringing joy in your life or, or whatever that you might uh, you might recommend for the people out there. I love this idea of recommendations. This is, this is like, this is a really good thing. <laughs> um, so I have uh, an advanced reader copy of Matthews Pruder's new memoir. It's called Story of a Poem. Um, he is a poet, um, and this is a book of prose. So you can probably guess from our conversation that I'm super into it <laughs> because I love, I love when poets write prose. But it's such a moving book, and it's it's really about. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but it's it's about writing and and about um, sort of parenting um, a child with special needs mm. and how those two things sort of inform each other. And it's just a beautiful book. So I would love to put it on people's people's radar. Um, it's out in April. Well, actually, while you could make this place beautiful, is also a beautiful book. I truly, I, I love that I ate it up. I read it really, really quickly, which is saying something because I'm not a very fast reader. And um, I just loved being with you in this book. So I just got to commend you on it. And just thanks so much for the work and everything you do. Oh, goodness. Thank you. Well... That was cool. Well, th thanks for listening, CNFers. Thanks to Maggie for coming on the show. Maggie, just me and you here. If you want to call me and hang up on me, go for it, all right? If you like this conversation as much as I did, consider sharing it and tagging me in the show on C at CNFpod on Twitter, ugh, uh, or Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram, mm, also ugh. Uh, this show will only grow because of you. As you know, I'm something of a nobody, so it's the validation of your endorsements that makes the needle move. There's so much content out there, so many old podcasts that are worth listening to, and many more new ones that are worth listening to as well, especially like new ones from like famous people, and then you're like, God damn it, how, now you're clouding up the works. Anyway, uh, this show will only survive the pod fade if you celebrate it, so long as it's worth celebrating. I think it still is. Consider heading to patreon.com slash cnfpod to throw a few bucks in the tip jar. Tip jar. The tip jar. Jesus. The tip jar. Show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. You know, when I see someone like Maggie Smith on, let's say, Instagram, being interviewed by someone like, let's say, CNFpod alum Leslie Jameson, I'm like, now there goes an intelligent conversation rife with intellectual insights that will, no doubt, showcase the pyrotechnics of their brains. Then there's CNF pod. Something, something, something's come across my, my transom. Sometimes when I'm editing these things, I'm proud, I'm, I'm not an academic type. Someone stilted and wooden, earnest, wearing flat front khakis and a form-fitting blazer. I also like that I'm not a teacher, not because I don't respect teachers, love me some teachers, but there's addiction teachers adopt. And whenever I'm around academic types, I can discern a sort of performative intellectualism that has more to do with proving what they know at the expense of what I don't. Or maybe I'm just insecure because I grew up next to a cranberry bog amidst juckets in the crooked teeth. So when I'm editing these things, I kind of... I kind of like that I'm sort of this dude you run into at a party. Maybe you're not happy you ran into me at a party. And what I'm going to do is ask you a bunch of questions, probably buy you a drink or two, and you'll walk away feeling heard, a little buzzed, but probably a little exhausted. You'll feel smarter because I'm something of an all-pro smiler and nodder. You might, though I doubt it, want to grab coffee to talk more at another time at a quieter venue. And you will forget, but I won't. You'll likely say, wow, I probably wouldn't wear a Metallica shirt and a Red Sox cap to a cocktail party. I guess what I'm trying to say is, I'm glad this little podcast that could doesn't try to be anything that it isn't. I like that the podcast, such as it is, doesn't give too many fucks. It gives a few fucks. It wants to grow, so there are some fucks, fucks given, but the fucks it gives are fewer and farther between. 
you might need to visit a rest area between the fucks it gives to maybe get a Mountain Dew and a Snickers bar. All right, yeah, that, that's going to do it. I'm going to go listen to the new Metallica album for the 44th time today, okay? 72 seasons. If you're streaming it right now, odds are so am I. So stay wild, CNFers. And if you can't do, interview. See ya.